for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Oh my Lord, the response from last week's listeners, question and answer, was so cool. And the questions, they just keep rolling in. Man, oh man, it's getting close and we can even feel the excitement buzzing through your emails. So today, your coaches are going straight to the Elk Bros mailbox and see what we can do about chopping at that list of questions. So stay tuned, guys and gals. It's Elk Bros mailbox time on steroids. So my friends, pull up a chair, adjust your volumes just right, and welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by ElkBros.com with your host, Gilbert Ornelas, and elk hunting coach, Joe Gillian. You want to hunt elk? They live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons, doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Hello there, everyone. If it's your first time with us, glad to have you. Hope you enjoy our show. And for those blue-collar hunters following our show and grinding it out with us every week, welcome back to Elk Camp. I'm Gilbert Ornelas coming to you from Spring, Texas, and from Cimarron, New Mexico, your elk hunting coaches, Joe Gillia and Leroy Chavez. Yeah, yeah but What's you don't on, see Chad? us, man. Hey, Come on, Gilbert. guys. You don't see us, but we're... Oh, yeah, there. You guys have got to see this. Well, y'all probably can't. Maybe you can on the YouTube channel, but they are in the Vacru camo from Legendary. This is, this is, I mean, you guys are getting it firsthand right here from Elk Bros. This is the first stuff to hit the streets. Joe Gilly and Leroy Chavez are in and dressed out in the camo, brother. Yeah. It looks fantastic, <laughs> man. Um, it's, um, it's so surreal right now to be sitting in something that you envisioned that you talked about. I mean, God, all these years I kept talking about camo yeah. and what I wanted to do and, and never, I mean, if you'd asked me then there's no way I would have thought that we are here right now doing what we're doing. And, you know, the Vacru camo um, is real now. It's uh, we've just finished our first sale. Uh, it, that was our special edition sale and just to see what the response was like, we're, we're really anxious to get this out in the field, to get some feedback from our grinders. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, check this out. This this is something that's a little addition that's going to be on our on our site as well for all oh, those yeah. people out there that having to do gator. that social distancing. Well, <laughs> we've got the we got the neck gaiters. Check out Chav now. You won't even 
Uh, Chow's getting ready to totally disappear for you here. And for you guys that are that are listening, uh, we have neck gaiters in the Vacru camo, and uh, you know Chow's got it here with his hat on, and it's unbelievable how well this stuff. I, I'm just really super pleased with it, Gilbert. I got to give a shout out to my brother, uh, Scott Hallmark with Texas sports. Those guys kind of got our vision. Uh, Joe led them in the right direction. We've been working with them for, man, probably six to eight months now, really on the vision and how we wanted this to go down. And Scott and his team over there through this pandemic, and they've been just stellar, man. Yeah. People Mm -hmm. don't know that you were actually, uh, Scott, uh, thank you, bud, because Scott really is a big cog in this to help this make this happen. And he has just been so cool to work with. Uh, he's been so excited by the product. And yeah. I was like, Scott, dude, you know, because he's sending me samples. I'm like, bud, I don't want you blowing money making these samples. He goes, shoot, I'm going to wear it and I'm going to give it to all my friends. So yeah, yeah, he was yeah. like, he's like, I have no problem doing this. Yeah, and I love the logos for the Elk Bros. I mean, there's one on the back of the neck and then one on the chest. Yeah. I mean, it's a uh, uh, it's fantastic looking guys and joe sent me some pictures that that uh with the camo that's in the bushes and everything you guys i hope he can put it up there on our on the web page because it is extremely uh blending if i will for lack of a better word it it just blends with the surroundings and I'm telling you, it's going to give uh, these critters fits because they're so not going to be able to find us. And, and one of the special things we, you know, we have our shadow tech technology in it, and and we have that diffusion branch uh, look in it. And what we have in it, we have areas that are detailed to areas that are blurry that actually give that difference of of depth on there. Mm-hmm. And then really up close, you don't notice it, the diffuse branch shadows that are going across it. And as you get farther away, those get uh, more solid and it really starts to break that up. It's just, you know, it's been so much fun designing it and putting things into it that i've always wanted to do and and it, it and scott has been it's good stuff working. it's such good stuff i'm gonna flash a little picture right here if you guys can see that i mean y- you can actually see how well it blends in with its surroundings joe did that i don't know if it was this morning or yesterday it was but yesterday that's what right? he did with the with the pattern and i'm telling you we're just stoked about it i mean it blends in really well and for you guys that ordered it, y'all are going to enjoy yeah, this it's pattern. right in the middle of the picture there. And, I mean, it just breaks up. It has that contrast so that – and that's in the shade when most things turn all dark. I took that picture completely in the shade um, so to see if it would just get all black on there. And you can see how much that, that breaks up with everything going on behind it. So it's it's really exciting, Gilbert. And I, I've got another exciting announcement, man. No doubt. <laughs> and I did not – uh, this has been so long in in the making and years upon years yeah and and you know we had we had time that um time that we couldn't work on this and in, in the last month we had a whole different focus we had a life focus with what chad was going through and uh so uh some things got held back for a while there um but he's here so that's the most important thing and then got back and got to work on it and Guys, our Blue Collar Elk Academy's base camp, our first training camp, is released and on the Elk Bro site. And what we've done is because what we did, we wanted to get this released so that uh, our bow hunters could have it for this upcoming season because there's so many of our components that we're working on that 
are, are they're really past that right now. And so what we did was we made sure that we had the four solid component components that we wanted them to have access to. And in those four components alone, um, the amount of information you guys get for the price you're getting at, there's no way that you could go to one, two, three, or four seminars and, and get that information. I'm telling you. In fact, I, you'd have to go to quite a few seminars at a whole different pay scale than this. And what we've done is the normal price on this, on this part of our, this training camp is $75. But what we're doing is, is for those grinders out there that go and purchase this, it's going to be $50 as an introductory price. And as every component is added on in this next year, they will get all of that. It's going to be a dynamic training camp for them because every time they go back on there, they're going to see new additions and new things happening and new components. And what is there right now is just daggum awesome. I'm, I'm so excited about it. But it is going to be dynamic. And those people that buy it in this first year can renew at that price for their lifetime that they want to renew every year if they do it consecutively. So they're going to get a, a product that uh, basically, you know, uh, they're going to get a third off the price of, of what it is. So that that's pretty cool. And Gilbert, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited by it, man. Well, you should be. And I want to let our grinders know out there, I, I've been fortunate to hunt with these guys the last 10, well, Joe, 10 years and Chad probably six or seven and I'm I'm telling you the knowledge that you guys are going to get is man it's priceless so the the little fee that you pay to for all Joe's 30 plus years and 30 plus knockdown bulls every year in a in a in a setting that's not easy to hunt in guys when you hunt in public land it's not easy these guys make it seem easy but it it's not and uh, I've been able to be with them for a good number of days now and I'm telling you uh, the stuff that they're going to teach you. I mean, when you hit the, when you hit the woods this year, you're going to be armed with some elk bros, passion and knowledge, and it's going to help you, uh, seal the deal when you guys get in there and get ready. You're going to hear Joe talking in your ear, just like I get to every day, you know, when I'm in the woods. Well, you know, the cool part about this is, is while I was, you know, being creative and creating and typing and putting all of the the information in there, Chav, even when he was in his bed um, back in Albuquerque, was proofreading and, and correcting. You know, he was my editor, and uh, I mean, he's been right behind me on this, giving me the flexibility to be creative and him going in there and looking and checking on things and trying to make sure everything's right. So this has definitely been an Elk Bros deal right here. The coaches have been combined to do this. And I, I just wanted to add that there's a lot of interactive aspects uh, to the site itself, uh, if you uh, there's a lot of interesting and pertinent reading, but if you don't want to read it, uh, it's also on audio on the same site. Oh and, wow! And there's a lot of videos too. It's real interactive, so uh, yeah, it's if, something if you, different. <laughs> if you see something that's a button, you better check it out because there's a lot of interactivity. There's things come in from the side. There's flipping boxes. We've tried it, and there's also an addition when you get to our calling section that is the the Elk Bros Decision Tree, which 
basically gives you a situation and lets you make a decision. And if you make a correct decision, it'll keep letting you go for, further. If you make a decision that you ought to think about, it gives you reasons why you should think about it. It's really cool. It's kind of like being out there on the fly and having to make a decision. And we're building a lot of those. And, and those are going to constantly be added, man. I mean, as those situations come up uh, on the camp. So, uh, I will do a uh, YouTube video on the camp to introduce it and put it out for all you guys, and uh, uh, and and that way people can kind of take a look and we can show them. You know, I'm, you know, it's it's hard for me to explain everything that's on there. Um, uh, I, I want to tell you it's just okay because I'm going to underwhelm you and hope that you really get your socks knocked off, man. I, I I'm telling you I'm real. It is definitely from a coach's <clears throat> viewpoint. And it's a coach's style. I mean, that's that's how we work, Gilbert. That's how me and Chab work. And uh, that's how we try to do this in, in different ways that people can understand and comprehend. And, and y'all, uh, we talk to you just like we talk to you. So, yeah. Uh, and, Joe, let them, know, let them know what our webpage is so they can go to it and get that content. Absolutely. You can go to elkbros.com. Go to elkrose.com. You'll see the ad on the front page. You can go up to the navigation where it says Blue Collar Elk Academy, and uh, and you can just hit on that and go down, and you can read about the academy. You can check it out, uh, you know, and, and see what what it's about. And uh, I guarantee you, if you purchase it, uh, you're going to get well worth your money. I, I'm, I am so excited by it. Joe, you guys know what time it is. Shout it is time for the Elk Bros shout-outs. Shout if you're new to our show, these are just a few cities topping our charts this week. And remember, for our top listening cities, if you have any trouble finding any of these cities or finding your way in the Elk Woods, BaseMap Pro is the GPS app choice for the Elk Bros crew. Man, do I sound like an advertisement or what? Huh? <laughs> I should do this for Keep a living, Gilbert. Holy Toledo. So for all our grinders looking for an incredible deal, you can get 20% off a BaseMap Pro subscription with the promo code ELKBROS20. E-L-K-B-R-O-S-2-0. It covers all 50 states available to you with a promo code for only $24. That's, That's crazy great. cool right there. No doubt. So, all right. No doubt. And first city, man, our top city. Okay. One of the top listening cities this week is called the Cycling Capital of Kentucky because of the exceptional trails and riding opportunities in and around the town. It is also certified as a tree city by Tree City USA and annually hosts the World Chicken Festival that pays tribute to Colonel Sanders and Lee Cummings, founder of Lee's famous recipe chicken. Wow. <laughs> now, if I remember correctly, uh, Colonel Sanders uh, was born in a town eight miles from here. Oh, but cool. they celebrate both, both uh, apparently, and I've never heard of Lee Cummings or Lee's famous recipe chicken, but it's pretty famous back in the, the Midwest. The city was established in 1825 and with the name honoring their English heritage, London, Kentucky. Yeah, London, London Kentucky, Kentucky, man. The boys from the hills in the house. So <laughs> I actually met Colonel Sanders. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I met him in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, was uh, at one of the the stores that that they were opening, and they brought the colonel in there just to, to talk with us all. And and uh, so I ha I met the man, the legend, 
Mr. Colonel Sanders. And, uh, you know, guys, um, he told me a secret. <laughs> that's why i got such great fried chicken man <laughs> that's awesome you have to let us in on that joe <laughs> next up settled in the eastern shores of none other than lake Louisville, 30 miles north of downtown dallas this city did not exist before 1973 and established to create the irving monument to the spirit and courage of the Peters colonists who settled there during the years of the Republic of Texas and braved considerable hardships. This city extends 23 miles along the eastern shores of Lake Louisville and enjoys a myriad of recreational opportunities, including uh, capping, fishing, swimming, boating, hiking, picnicking, and cycling. It was once named the number one sports town for the state of Texas by Sports Illustrated in none other than Colony, Texas. And it's called The Colony, Texas? The Colony, Texas. That's wow, right. Man. Just like here in The Woodlands, Texas. Oh, so it's, okay. a sub, it's a suburb of Dallas. Um, All right. I was there yesterday. Drove right through Colony. So, uh, yeah, it's a suburb of Dallas. If you go through the north <clears> side, I mean – you go along the banks. So, so do you know anything about the Peters colonists? I mean, do you know what that was or anything like that? Mm -mm. No, sir. It got my interest up. You know, when when you have something like that, yeah. All right, next up. Before the arrival of European settlers, the Potawatomi and the Menominee Indians occupied the land on this town site. The town was established as a halfway point between Fond du Lac and Milwaukee. Now, I know I messed up that, that French word right there, but <laughs> I don't think so. I can dip a fondue anyway. And yeah. Milwaukee, as a rest stop in 1845, the Milwaukee River played a role in the city's history because the western bend in the river that produced enough energy to power sawmills and grist mills. This city is known as the geocaching capital of the Midwest, with more than 450 caches nearby. West Bend, Wisconsin. West Bend, Wisconsin. Every Wisconsin. week, Wisconsin's in the house, yeah, man. Yeah, man. Those that, Midwesterners, those... they got to, they got to show up and show out. <laughs> oh man, Wisconsin! <laughs> Thank you guys, man. Such incredible amount of listeners. Now, you know what geocaching is, bro? You know, Joe, I I think I do, but I'm not 100. percent Do you, do you know what geocaching? Is? No, I have a general idea, but not. Uh... Do you? Geocache, yeah, heck yeah. yeah. It's popular <laughs> as heck, man. When GPSs first started coming in, what right. people would do is they would put uh, like a little piece of paper to be signed and, and little trinkets and stuff like that, and they would cache. It comes from like the old yeah. day of the caches Storing that used to be yeah. done, and they would be cached, and then they would put the coordinates of that, and they would give people coordinates in an area so that they could go find the cache and yeah. sign the little paper thing and, and, uh, and, and they could mark that off on their list of, of places they've cached. And it's all over the United States. It's a very popular thing and way cool way to explore. Yeah, you know, if I turn on my handheld deal, it'll have geocaching in oh, yeah. it, you know. Cool. So, yeah, it, it is really cool. Uh, that's awesome, man. Hmm. Uh, all right, next Chad. Up, next up, a popular tourist destination that is known for its cool summers, fog, steep rolling hills, eclectic mix of architecture and landmarks, including the Golden Gate Bridge, cable cars, the former Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary, 
Fisherman's Wharf and its Chinatown district, the Yeluma, Yelamu, <laughs> I think it's Yelamu, Yel- Yelamu and Ohlone Indians resided in the area before a Spaniard exploration party led by Don Gaspar de Portola discovered California and claimed it for Spain in 1769. It became part of Mexico in 1821. Its original name was Yerba Buena. Yerba Buena. Which is uh, good weed. Yeah. And, <laughs> it, <is. laughs> and was, it was changed sure, in 1848, and California became a state in 1850. Can anybody guess what this is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> San Francisco, California. San Francisco. San Francisco, California. You know, when I was a boy, Joe, I spent a little time up there. Uh, between the age of about 10 and 12, my, my dad, mom, uh, my, my mom married my stepdad, and uh, he ran a steel slitting house, and they moved him to a little town called Union City, uh, California, which is just on the outskirts of San Francisco, um, the Petaluma, Union City area. Uh, beautiful country up there. Uh, really nice mornings and uh and cool you know it was cool and stuff like and didn't get very hot but some very beautiful architecture in the city oh i imagine man but you know being a uh, a boy from the south back it was in rough, the boonies joe. Uh, <laughs> it was rough joe well no i mean i'm just telling you being from the boonies in the south i always thought san francisco was a restaurant to served rice <laughs> rice aroni yeah because yeah, it was yeah. it was that commercial you know rice aroni the san francisco, san francisco tree yeah. I, I had no you know I, I was deprived geographically so <laughs> i had no idea and erba buena uh is um actually it's a it's a com you know it's a um herb that yeah we would make tea for our daughters whenever they had bad stomach. Mm-hmm. And so our, our, when they were babies, my wife would take Ed Bowena and, and make a tea out of it and give it to them just to soothe their stomachs. It was sure. one of those great things that uh, the grandparents God gave that God gave us, Joe. <laughs> yes, he absolutely. gave us corn and he gave us all kinds of different herbs to take care of some ailments <laughs> that we might need. <laughs> Well, that's for another podcast. Joe, the next one up on our list is our final top listening city, one of the most historic cities in America. It's home to the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, where the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence was signed. It boasts some outstanding art museums, including the Franklin Institute Science Museum that honors the life and work of Benjamin Franklin. And it's in this city that most, it's his most famous ambassador. This city also features the world famous Philly cheesesteak sandwich. <laughs> William Penn, an English Quaker, found, founded the city in 1682 in none other than <laughs> Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yep, that's where it was all started right there, man. Yeah. Everything this country uh, is, is founded on. Philly's got some historic events that's gone on around there. Yeah, that's uh, sure. And I always always knew people from Philly. And and one thing, you know, about people from Philly, they're like people from Texas, man. They are proud of where they're from, man. You know where you're from. I'm from Philly, man. You know what I'm saying? So that's that's way cool. Hey, and I'm going to tell you, you know, our our, uh, thoughts and prayers are going out to all those East Coast Coast counties and East Coast towns that are having a rough time right now. So, 
you guys are all in our thoughts and prayers. Y'all take care of one another out there. Absolutely, man. <clears throat> we're going to go to our Elk Bros mailbox, and we're going to get started, man. We've got a bunch to knock out here, and, uh, you know, uh, and some topics that we, we're going to spend some time on, but um, – there was a bunch last week we weren't able to get through. And last week, man, people just loved the Q&A, and questions started rolling in. So we're going to go ahead and take care of those, man. Um, the first one, though, Gilbert, that we're going to talk about, guys, it's not really a question. And we had one of those last week. Uh, if, you, if you remember last week, we had, do, yes. uh, we had a topic that came in. And I thought this was real important to bring up and to talk about. And what I, this is from Robert Knuckles from Cowlands, Virginia, and Jeff Davis out of Idaho. Uh, two gentlemen that, that listen to our show, love our show, and I thought it was really cool that they sent this in. And, and, and like I tell people all the time, understand something. We do this, all of this that we do is about all of us learning something. I guarantee you what I'm doing is I'm giving you the information and Gilbert and Chav getting the information that we've gone out and that we've learned from making a lot of mistakes, doing some things right, learning what worked, what didn't, and trying to help you guys with your learning curve. And in doing that, sometimes we have a tendency to simplify a few things. And thus the question that comes out here from these fellas. First of all, Robert said, he says, uh, first off, love y'all's podcast. I don't miss an episode, but I wanted to mention something that I heard numerous times on your podcast. I hunt bow hunt Colorado every year, usually the rugged San Juans. And San Juans are just north of us, right? Right. So, yeah, we're pretty close. Yep. Uh, there are a lot of open feeding areas on top of the ridges, and the elk most often feed all night on top, then head down in the canyons to bed. Y'all have made the point many times on your podcast that elk always bed high and feed low. Or if you hear a bugle on the ridge tops at night, that it's another hunter because the elk are always feeding low. This is not just not the case in the areas that we hunt in Colorado. And then Jeff Davis came back and, and along the same line said that he wanted to address, you know, he threw you out, Gilbert, right away. <laughs> <laughs> but you and I have both mentioned something like this and said on episode 78 about night bugling, more specifically that the elk bed up high and feed down low. That is not entirely true in my experience. More accurately, they feed where the food sources are. Uh, whether they're on the tops, the same elevation, or the bottom. I live and hunt in Idaho and have hunted Oregon several years and guided in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. Too bad we haven't bumped into each other, Jeff, man. I, I live right up here as north as you can get. Um, and I've really uh, only seen them come to the bottoms about 25% of the time. Uh, okay. Uh, it just depended on where the feed and the water was. Absolutely. I just think it's important for new hunters not to get caught up in too many old adages as I did when I first started out. Keep up the great work. Y'all are much appreciated. And that's the exact reason, uh, Jeff and Robert, that I'm reading this out right now um, is because I, I replied back to both these guys, Gilbert, that they are absolutely right. We know this, and sometimes we oversimplify things. And I'll tell you something else that happens a lot. A lot of times when we talk about things, we, we talk from the perspective of our last hunt, or we talk from the perspective of the last place that we were. And, yeah. and you know, so let's talk about um, they, they bed high and they eat low, because they're exactly right, and you've said it time and time again, Gilbert, that elk are slaves to their belly. They 100% are. 
Right. And and I can tell you, especially in this Mesa country in northern New Mexico, uh, a lot of this ridge country, you know, an area that we hunt in all the time um, has it, the way it's built. It has a it's kind of a mesa with big sides on it or deep canyon and it gets flat on top and then it'll go up to other hills that keep going up and go up into the mountains. And and you'll have elk that will come off the side of that where they dove off. Um, or they'll come from the upper ridges as well. I've even found them bedded uh, in the feed area because it was less pressure in there and there was enough shade and cover for that to happen. So, you know, a good point being made up here and a point that, that's important. Now, when I try to help people by generalizing that um, elk like to bed high, and what I mean by that is, if even if they dove off on the side, um, I've seen I've seen two things happen with it, and and it's some it's hard to take every scenario into account because I've seen them dive off the side and find something thick about two thirds of the way up on the side there, so that they could have any scent coming from the bottom, and then they were not that far from getting back on the top. I have also seen them dive all the way down to the bottom of that canyon and bed down in the thickest crap down in the bottom where it was nice and cool where those thermals down there actually came. And here's what I want to talk about. It all sometimes has to do with thermals. And guys, thermals is something that is an incredible conversation and it's not like the wind. You can have a... Uh, a wind that's coming from a particular direction, a steady wind. Thermals, on the other hand, are going to be different wherever that temperature is different. If you mm -hmm. get down into a deep, dark canyon that has reached a certain temperature because it's in the shade, those thermals start falling. If you have uh, uh, an area on, on a hillside where the sun is hitting that first, mm -hmm. um, then that area is going to heat up and then that air in that area rises. Uh, elk are masters at thermals. Especially at, cows. Yeah, and, and putting themselves in positions, defensive positions, to be able to uh, know what's happening, to know which direction danger should be coming from. So, I, you know, I would, I would concede to say, and, and, and like I told these guys, they are absolutely right. I have seen elk that will feed in a burn on a ridge side all night long and bed down in that, and then they will go off into, and depending on the prevailing winds, the prevailing thermals, and the areas that, that, that they know are, they're going to have the best thermals, that's where they go. Mm -hmm. And so... I, I thought this was a great thing to bring up because it is a generalization and it's a generalization depending on the terrain, depending on the topography. And, and that's what I said, you know, I, I and said the one food time, source where the food and water is too. Absolutely. Because yeah. we've always said slave, that elk are slaves to their bellies. You they're, bet. They're going to be where the best food is. And I think that is the most important. And there's something else to remember is that, you know, these guys are getting ready to head out and to hunt these bull elk uh, that are worried about finding the, the bull elk right now. It's the same thing. I, I tell guys, don't look for the bulls. Look for the cows, man, because exactly. the cows are going to dictate where those bulls are. But when we go back to the terrain, 
you know, you go to some places in Arizona, man, with those really long slopes going out there, there really is no difference in terrain elevation, yeah, and right. elevation in some areas. And then there's some places where there are, you know? Yeah, and I, I guess, Joe, we should throw out a dis- disclaimer or a misnomer that we hunt in elevated country up to, you know, 11,000 feet. So, uh, and a lot of times we'll be down at 8,000 feet to, you know, and moving upwards in the morning or be up at 11,000 and hunt downwards. E- either way, uh, those elk move with the thermal cur- currents and uh, it's important for them to do so. I can't tell you how many times uh, we've been in our tents and we hear them come down in the, in the lower part of the mesa and they just, they stay down there all night bugling. And then by the time you get on them in the morning, those thermals are starting to switch. Those cows are starting to head back up to that 10,000 foot range, right? You can watch those bulls, herd those cows up, and here they go. And really, the lead cow is the one taking them, right? So sure, they've absolutely. been down there feeding in the bottom all night, laying around, maybe doing a little bit of pre-rut activity, bugling, this, that, and the other. And then all of a sudden, that thermal starts to switch, and that lead cow, she's going to go, right? Well, if you think, if you really think of a, a lot of the areas, I, I think the – I think the skill set, the important thing to learn out of here is you find out how they like to move in a particular area, where their food source is and where their bedding area is, where they feel most secure. And and I know out in the flats here, like if you come out of like where we live in Cimarron and, and you have the hills that basically stop at the canyons and then you come in, you start getting into the plains. Well, we have, um, where the rivers cut through. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And those elk will be out there on the flats, and they drop down into those creek areas and those thick thickets where the willows and and uh, and stuff are, and they'll bed down in those. So, yep. you know, and we all have to remember that these originally are plains animals. They are really gifted at survival. They're going to go where they feel like they have security, where they can tell um, with their nose and with their eyes. They're going to do. They're going to use their senses in a way so that they can have the best defense. It's all about survival with them. Yeah, and let's not forget pressure. You know, now that we're going to be in the woods with them, we're going to affect those movements. You know, uh, they are definitely creatures of habit, but they can adapt so quick to what's going on. That's why we can pass right by them, and they're still there and don't even care that we're there. You know, they're creatures of habit, and they know – they, they figure things out really quick. You know, and and I can tell you, probably the bulls, if we think back, the bulls that really get away from us are those ones that are feeding on top and they drop off the side. Uh, yep. Because we have some, I mean, we know how the ones that move when they're feeding and they move up to the ridges. And we have, gosh, there's a group, man, there's one group in, in, in one area that comes from that bottom down there mm-hmm. every time i mean we can hear them down there yeah. and they're coming up but that is how that group moves in that particular area and we've had the gift of knowing how the elk like which what their travel corridors are right how yeah. they like to move through yeah they'll find the the dark areas mm-hmm. the dark cool areas you know whether it's in a steep mountainside a steep canyon side or even a, a river bottom uh, and they don't stay bedded in the same spot, you know, the whole time. As the sun moves across, they they uh, stand up, maybe feed a, a minute or two, then lay down in the shade again. You know, it, yeah. there's a constant slight movement in their bedding area, but they're they like that dark stuff. Yeah, and you know, um, 
I, I think uh, when you think about this, we've tried to, in a way, again, oversimplify some things as to not boggle some people too much. And so yeah. it, it's a good point that Robert and Jeff makes. It's just that sometimes you try to uh, isolate things. So we, we want to make sure that we put that out there, and we want to make sure that we have this discussion. We want to thank both Jeff and Robert and uh, some of our, our co-brothers out there that, that hunt the elk, man. And, and I That's hope, uh, Jeff, next time you're up near northern New Mexico, look us up, man. Uh, down here in Cimarron, right right on the border, bud. So uh, be, be nice to shake your hand and meet you. So up next, who, what's the next one, Chad? Next one comes from Randy Fritz from Missoula, Montana. And he says, I don't have a problem getting it done with a rifle, but my question is, would you recommend hunting the same areas I find elk during the rifle season during archery? I usually tend to hunt spots in archery, then switch to other areas during the rifle and can find elk often during the rifle, but don't go into some of those areas during the archery season. So I'm just wondering if you think there will be elk there during the archery season. You know, Gilbert, um, after the question that we just got done answering, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to I'm going to tell you is that it really really depends, and, and and it depends on the area again, like what we were just talking about, all those variables. I I have the privilege of guiding on on an incredibly large ranch, and we have some canyon country that. You are you're when you find those elk early on in the summer, um, those bulls, they are not there come rut. They have traveled dang, fifteen twenty miles to get to where the cows are feeding, and then you know after they're done there, they travel fifteen twenty miles back into those you know the mouths of those canyons and those canyon ridges, and you're not going to find them where those cows are. You might find some of those younger bulls, but you're not going to find those bigger bulls. Now, I know of another area that is an incredible, there's incredible feed. Um, it's got uh, great cover. It's almost its own little oasis, and we find big bulls there um, before the rut. We find them during the rut, and we find them after the rut. Now, they'll go barreling off into other areas to find some seclusion, but they're not as far away because they manage to have all of that within a certain amount of distance. So, you know, that it's, it's a tough call. And in, in my practice, um, I have not found the elk per se always in the same area that I find them where they're rutting. I generally find them in a little bit different area because a lot of times they've gone to get away and to get into holes and to recover and then they come out feed 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 is what they do after that point you know so uh i, I want to tell you randy it's going to depend on on the one thing and that's going to be the conditions uh especially you know uh where you're rifle hunting it can also be a time when there's a lot of snow right and if there's a lot of snow it pushes those animals away from you know where they're going to be when there's when there's not so they're going to go again where the best food is so if we're going to talk about that i think the number one key for all of us to think about is food source okay they need food they need water and you have those and man those those late bulls in in december 
those guys are eating, eating, eating. We, we see them out in the open. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's actually the best time. That late November, December hunt, uh, most states don't have that. We don't in New Mexico because that's the mm-hmm. best time to get a big mature bull. But, uh, you know, it's just going to be different from where they are during the during the rut. Okay. Now, now you've Good hunted. Stuff, you've hunted some. You know, like for example, um, you take when we hunted with Carl. You know, yep. you were going to find elk in that canyon at some point in place, whether it was the rut or whether it was a rifle season. You bet. You know, and but that was because it held the trifecta for them. And when sure. I talk about the trifecta, I'm yep. talking about food, water, and and Cover. security, right? Yep. And they had that. And so, you know, if they don't have to go too far, they're not going to eat themselves out of their own home, you mm-hmm. know. So sometimes they'll rotate to different areas. But it's so different when they're herded up and when they're singled out. They can get by in an area a lot longer than when a herd's chewing on it. Yep. No, I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you, Joe. I, you know, some sometimes – in the early archery season, you know, the bulls are just in a different, little bit different spot. And really, the cows are what position them, you know. Those cows herd up in bigger groups during the rifle season. They get out there in some of those places that it's a little bit easier to put eyes on them uh, because they're in bigger groups. You know, they like getting out in the parks and stuff like that and feeding. The cows do, and, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, the cows do. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times in the rifle season, that's you know, you'll find one of those late bulls uh, – trying to, you know, trying to find some late cows that are rutting. So, uh, you know, again, it really depends on where that feed is. And and for those bulls, when they're coming off the rut, they're trying to pack on the pounds to get ready for that tough winter, you know. Well, I I can tell you last March, you know, we did our preseason scouting and we found a group of 20 bulls, um, you know, way before it was time, you know, before the rut. And because they because we don't have bad snowfall and because the moisture stayed up there and the grass stayed good that's the exact place we found them during the archery season so again it has to do with weather it has to do with the feed and has to do with the water man i mean there's sometimes elk get pushed out of an area and and if they're able to stay in that area and they don't have to worry man they will they they sure Sure. will okay i mean Shoot, look at all those elk that hang around uh, uh, up there in those mountain towns of Colorado, you know. Estes. Yeah. Ooh. Man, they lay in the yards of people. They ain't scared of folks, you know. Nope. They nope. just, they, they're going to stay where the food's at. Up next, um, Chris McKelvey from Santa Rosa, California. Uh, I'm, there's two parts to this, man. Chris is a character. I love Chris, man. Uh a possible suggestion. I was thinking on an Ornellis Unleashed, you guys should cover some Ornellisisms. <laughs> <laughs> we can get her done, partner. <laughs> I heard Gilbert say, not sure how to spell this, but how do you say that word, Gilbert? Boodlin. Boodlin. <laughs> Boodlin. That's so half heard... running, half jogging. 
<laughs> said, I heard him say boodle in reference to elk moving, and my mind drew a blank. Is that closer to a gallop or a sauner? <laughs> it would be in between both. <laughs> I wonder, because my grandpa frequently made up his own compound words based on the situation and described Where things you think I got them, Chris? <laughs> that would confuse people that uh, didn't know him well. And I think saunter, I mean, that's even a word that's kind of <laughs> oh, regional yeah. too, isn't it? Meander, saunter, yeah, saunter, you bet. Yeah. Boodling. My grandpa would say that deer come boodling down the road. He's kind of just moving quickly, but not real fast. You know, <laughs> he's boodling a lot. <laughs> boodling down the road. Yeah. So his so. question was, "What's up, brothers?" He says, "One more question for you guys. I got a limited elk tag to hunt a specific unit. After talking to the people at CPW, uh, I'm trying to figure out where this is. I was told." Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Probably. Oh, okay. I was told or my California license... Parks and Wildlife. All right. My license is good to hunt only two units. Well, I have better chances going OTC. Now it makes me think it's not. It makes it sound like Colorado, OTC and limited. Right. And being able to hunt multiple units, or should I stick with the units I got? It's my first time hunting elk, and I'm a non-resident. So he's in California. Yeah, this is Colorado. Uh, I'm yeah. a non-resident, so it's all new country to me. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Thanks again. Uh, when will the Academy be available? Chris, it's on. Ding, ding. <laughs> ding. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I also wanted to mention yeah. you guys were a big factor as far as me pulling the trigger and planning the trip. That is friggin' awesome, man. That's way cool. Yeah. Chris, we um, want pictures, brother. So... I think I, I talked something about this in the last podcast. And what I would tell you, Chris, is this, man. Uh, your two units, when you get out there, are going to seem so intimidating. The country's going to seem so big. And for you to get to know that area and where you can possibly find the elk, uh, and it's limited. So since it's limited, it's all already just limiting people that are going to be in there. So my word to you is is... is it's kind of like uh, we say with our bow, aim small, miss small, yeah. right? And that's kind of what I'm telling you. For us in New Mexico, we get a unit and that's it. That's all we can hunt. Uh, I'll tell you, two units to be able to hunt, and it's a limited unit. Uh, you ought to be able to find elk in those two units. I would focus on that. I would aim small, miss small, man. I would not go shotgun and just try to get all over the place and not know where I am from day to day. I, I would stick with the two units. Yeah, I agree hundred uh, percent, Chris. I would stick to the two units, put my, do my uh, e-search and e-scouting. And, and uh, if you can put some boots on the ground before season, try to find where those cows are, where the feed is and the water is. And you just narrow it down from there. What do you, what do you think, think, what do you think Chad? Yeah, I think, uh, Gilbert hit that right. You know, do your research, you know, uh, Google Earth or uh, Basecamp or any other app that you have and and uh, look for the trifecta, as Joe says, you know, uh, water, feed, uh, shelter. And, uh, you know, if you get there early enough to acclimate to the, to the uh, altitude, you know, coming from California, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, spend some time in the local... Uh, areas you know eating or shopping or whatnot and just ask a few questions you might get uh some surprising answers that might help you out and you know yeah. uh 
I'm, I'm going to give you a little tip, too, on, on finding information when you're in, in places in, in some of these states. When you go to a local restaurant or a local store, you know, I, you strike up a conversation in a different way. And you tell them, you know, I saw the doggonest thing. I saw a whole group of elk rutting. They were screaming and chasing everything right behind this person's house, just not too far from here. And you'd be surprised some of the stories that start to roll out about where it happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. Most, most people want to tell you what they know. You just got to lead them in that direction. Right. Absolutely. So up like next. a guy like me, I talk leg off a wooden Indian. So you're going to come <laughs> up and talk to me. You better be prepared to stay a minute or two. Okay. Up next is BJ Thompson from Redmond, Oregon. I am an experienced hunter, but new to archery elk hunting and a novice elk caller. Do I need a bugle and a grunt tube or can I grunt with a bugle or vice versa? I try to minimize the amount of gear I take into the field. I am certainly not opposed to taking both if necessary, but I know sometimes manufacturers keep building new stuff to sell to hunters. You know what's so funny about this? BJ, um, I think, and if I'm reading this right, I think you're making the same mistake that all kinds of people make. Whenever I get my grunt tube and I have my diaphragm call and I bugle, most people think that there's a device in the grunt tube to do the bugle. They have no idea that it's coming from the diaphragm in my mouth. So um, when you say, do I need a bugle and a grunt tube, or can I grunt with a bugle or vice versa? So there are, there are bugles that have external devices on them that you can blow into or, or use a, a reed on it and bugle with it. Uh, and that grunt tube is attached to it. But most elk calls that most guys are using out in the West is a diaphragm mouth call. And it's just a device that goes up into the palate of your mouth. Kind of like when we were kids and we take a blade of grass and we put it between our fingers and we'd blow and make that whistling noise. That's what a diaphragm calls a, a lot like going up in the palate of your mouth. And you need that grunt tube to give it the resonance and the realism. It really changes the sound of the call, gives them that volume. So, uh, you can, it. yeah, yeah, projects, projects it, out. it out, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you can, yes, you can get a call that is a, an attached grunt tube and a mouth blowing call on it. There's different kinds out there, or you're going to use diaphragm mouth calls. That's what we encourage people to use. And the reason that we encourage that is because now you become a hands-free caller. There are situations that if I have an animal that I didn't see that all of a sudden boogers, I'm able to throw out cow calls or scream a bugle just really, really quick because I'm always at the ready with that diaphragm call in my mouth. Or if I have an animal in front of me and I'm drawing back my bow on that animal, I will use my diaphragm call in my mouth to cow call or scream a bugle or uh, give a grunt at that animal to stop and freeze it or to cover my draw. If I have an animal that's walking in front of me, a lot of people think that if you draw when you're in plain sight that these animals are, are going to booger. And one of the things that I 
that I've done for years is if I have an animal walking in front of me, I'll scream a bugle while I'm drawing at the same time. Now understand, this is if I'm not able to draw ahead of time. And for me, that's real difficult because I shoot a bow that doesn't have 80% let off. And so I'm generally drawing pretty much when that animal right before I get a chance to let go because I'm instinctive too. But I can have a bull walking in front of me at 12 yards and I can scream a bugle and draw at the same time and that animal will hear that bugle and it'll stop and stare at me and see that movement and, and is confused just for that second because it relates yeah. that bugle with that movement of there being a bull there and it gives me all just the amount of time I need and boom, it's it's done, right? Yeah, and even if they do booger, they don't go but about five or ten yards, and they'll turn broadside again to find out what that was. Uh, I've seen that happen before, but you got to draw. It is imperative that you draw, and it's much better for them to be away from cover while they're walking. Like you said, Joe, use your little diaphragm to, you know, to stop them. And if they don't stop, and you draw, and they booger a little bit, well, they'll probably be five or ten yards further than they were before. But absolutely, ninety percent of the time, they're going to turn broadside. Well, especially do. if they're close proximity to you, they are going to jump a little bit because when they hear something and they see that Startle. movement that they didn't know was there, it startles them for a second. So they're going to run off a little bit, and they're going to stop and turn broadside. And and I can tell you um, the reason, I, I, I how many times that I tried to draw on animals with their head behind a tree as they were moving, their head would come off the other side. They would see me clear as daylight moving and would stop and stare at me with the tree right in the kill zone. So I learned a long time ago, man, after a, a lot of frustrating acts like that, I just wait till they're in the clear before I draw, and they do the same thing, but there's no tree there. So, uh, so that's why we use uh, a mouth diaphragm. It's just so much more convenient, and you can produce so many different calls, BJ. So uh, if I were you, I would uh, get out there, get on the Internet. Uh, I would go out. I would buy me uh, uh, either the Elk 101 series from uh, uh, and or – I'd get the Phelps black or the Phelps gray, right? Uh, and I was yeah, going to say from Corey, from Corey Jacobson and Elk 101, mm -hmm. I would do that. Yeah. Um, that's exceptional calls to get. And and they're really good for beginners starting out. So that, that's – Yeah, just they are very – man, they make great sounds right out of the package. I'm a little old school. I started up on a black Primos and a white Primos call, and I, man, I'm telling you, if it ain't fixed, don't break it. So, uh, and vice versa, uh, I, I, you know, at, at the end of the day, I like, I, I have personally, I personally have Corey Jacobson's calls in my bag. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do have a Phelps call and I, I have Primos and, you know, it just depends on the day and the sound that I'm really wanting to hear. And, uh, but I love the diaphragm call. I love the, uh, versatility it gives you with the grunt tube. Like Joe said, I killed a bull with Joe standing right behind me and Chad standing right behind me. And if Joe wouldn't have screamed a bugle at that uh, bull, I would have had the cow call or scream myself. Uh, and, and that bull actually did stop with his, with a, a tree in the vital. So I just had to move. I actually moved probably two foot with a step and the bull never boogered. He just looking right straight through us. Right. And that gave me enough time to get the old red dot where that red dot was supposed to be. And we put him down. 
You know, so, I, and I, I want to say too, there there's so many good companies out there making some good calls now. They're, yeah. You know that. Uh, yeah. You can go out there. You can go to Liberty. Liberty has just started out, and uh, and they actually get their calls made by native by Carlton, and they got them made to great their specific specifications. Now, um, native by Carlton uh, uh, is also uh, making a narrow framed elk call now and i really like their calls i really like what they do i just like their passion man they put so much into their calls the look and everything but they're doing but the problem is is they have have those wide frame calls and it makes it more difficult for a palette like mine so now they've gone to a narrow framed and i'm real excited about that so you've got native by carlton you got uh liberty calls smith game calls does a terrific job up there too you got uh the the mile high note call calls out of colorado that um uh tom uh Diesling is a world champion caller and and makes some fantastic calls up there they, he he doesn't have any with a pallet plate and i'm pallet plate specific i really like a pallet plate because i don't have to worry about shifting or or the or the call getting pushed against my pallet so that's just yeah. my preference okay you bet Next up with uh, Mr. Roy Matheson, uh, or Matthewson, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, out of Colorado. He says, I know I'm not likely to see elk now where they will be in September. So on my last scouting trip, I was looking for more scrapes, feed, water sources, where cows might be as the rut approaches. The area impenetra in is impenetrable areas due to blowdowns and also some nice open areas and game trails in thicker areas. I saw pretty fresh moose droppings and a little older elk scat and some mule deer scat. I saw rubs on trees and were pretty low on trees. And one uh, poor little seven foot tall pine that had been killed by, a scrape, by scraping this past year. I found lots of water running in creeks down the mountainside and a few ponds that showed evidence of moose activity, but no clear evidence of wallows. There were lots of grasses and forbs throughout most of the areas too. I'm thinking the area doesn't seem too promising. So should I go up a little higher or move to a different area uh, of the unit? What do you think? So I'm not, um, <laughs> I wish I knew a lot about moose, but I do know moose like those wet areas down in the bottom and yeah. those scrapes that he's seeing could even Swampies. be from the moose themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, I would think if you want to get out and, and be able to decipher from the moose activity to an elk activity, yeah, I would move up a little bit. And, and it's out of my wheelhouse. I do not know how moose and, and elk affect each other. I, I don't know that they do or if they do. or. Yeah, I don't either. Never hunted moose, but I know they like the boggy, wet areas, you know. Right, uh, yeah. And, and your elk kind of prefer the high country at times so well yeah i mean it, they do like the wallows they like the water yeah, and and you're yeah. not going to see wallows right now because it's not time for you to see those wallows That's yet right. but uh you know i do know that elk and cattle we see them together all the time mm -hmm. yeah, right do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so i don't know that another critter is really what's keeping them out of the area now the only thing I would have concern is is a bull moose uh, could be a rank old fella himself. I don't know that a, 
And I, I just wonder what happens yeah. when a rut and bull elk gets around. A, now, the moose actually a rut. rut a little bit different time. Early. They rut earlier yeah. in August? Yeah, I think so. So, um, but Getting close for them. Yeah, but I, I just uh, I'm not sure what happens there. Yeah, me if I'm not seeing if I'm not seeing sign if all I'm seeing is older elk scat from a year before, you know I'm out yeah. looking for where those cows are. So that's what I would tell you, Roy, is get out there and find where those cows are now. Find the droppings, find a, a lot of tracks yeah. and stuff. And you start doing that, you're going to be in high cotton, man. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, find that find that cat scat. I mean, yeah. uh, cow scat and stuff. Yeah. You know. Yeah, Roy, if. Um... You know, I'm not sure uh, your unit, how big it is and how many different uh, choices you have. But, uh, you know, I I believe it was about this time of year that we were heading to Colorado Springs or, or to Denver, I guess. And between uh, Castle Rock and Denver, the uh, the cows were in the subdivisions. <laughs> right. Yes. So, so they were really low. So there's... You know, according to what you described, it seems to have a lot of uh, things that uh, elk would look for, too. Again, the interaction between an elk and a moose, you know, we don't know. But if you have the opportunity to check on that same spot a little later on in the year, uh, check it. Who knows? And and I'll tell you, too, like Chav said, uh, elk will actually, those cow elk, there will be different herds in different areas that like different places. And... You know, again, they don't eat themselves out of house and home, so they they will get in different places. Like uh, that group they saw in the subdivision probably doesn't go too far from there, but there'll be some in those high parks uh, areas. There'll be some in those canyons. They'll they'll locate those areas and and move to those areas where they can get what they need out of that, and that's food, water, and shelter. So uh, I'd be looking for the cows, man. Okay, up next. Absolutely. John Lang out of Fort Collins. Now, John has a pretty lengthy one here, and uh, I'm going to come back to John because I want to do this one first from Ryan Wietrich out of Temecula, California. Uh, Ryan has something that I think is really good to speak to because we actually did a podcast on this, and I think it's a good discussion. He says, my hunting partner and I don't usually hunt early and late light because we're not familiar with the area. Kind of sounds familiar. In other yeah. words, they don't they don't hunt, they don't get out in the dark, and they don't come back in the dark. <clears throat> oh, right? okay, okay. Um, <clears throat> I want I, I keep wanting to hunt later in the evening, but my partner doesn't want to. I understand that he doesn't feel comfortable hiking back to the truck in new areas in the dark. I imagine there are a lot of people out there in that situation that would be uncomfortable or even afraid. What do you suggest to help people when it comes to heading in early and coming out late? We know that there are only so many hours in a hunt. And, you know, you <clears throat> talk about how you used to be with Yeah, them. I, I kind of had the same uh, feeling that uh, your partner did. You know, whenever I was hunting uh, pretty late, I'd, I'd look at the watch and figure, okay, it takes me an hour to get back to camp, so I'm going to start heading back. Because <laughs> I don't want to get out there, get lost out there either. And I, I did one time, actually, and, and I thought I knew exactly where I was at, and I ended up uh, about two or three miles from camp. But that was before GPS, you know, and uh, base camp apps that, that are on your telephone. So, uh, you know, that uh, allowed me to stay hunting till dark or close to dark. Because that's when the animals start coming out. 
that have been uh, bidding all day long. So, uh, you know, the, the new apps make it, make it a lot different nowadays. And if you don't, and of course they're, they're, uh, the arrow will point uh, as the crow flies. But what you could do is, uh, you know, register some waypoints so that that'll make the traveling easier for you. But you can stay up late now and get up early also at the same time. You bet. I mean, it helped me quite a bit. Well, and if, Ryan, if you guys are not leaving camp until daylight, and if you're getting back at camp at daylight, you're actually missing the prime times of hunting. And this is something that myself, I have capitalized on. And I've capitalized on other people not leaving camp until right before daylight. I've had so many people that have come by me on four-wheelers when I already had an elk down on the ground because by the time they even left camp, and they got to those areas where I was, I was already done, man. I'd already had an interaction, uh, called a bull in, shot a bull, and was already working it by the time they're even driving by because, you know, they want to see where they're going. And because of the habits of the animals, now one thing that I will tell you is uh, I don't care whether they're out in the flats. I don't care whether they're in Arizona, New Mexico, Idaho. If they're in the parks at night, at some point, they're going to hit the trees after daylight, and they're going to get in those trees, and they're going to start heading to their bedding areas. They're only going to stay out there so long in that open. And as rifle seasons get around, those days get shorter. Sometimes it's only 15 minutes, man. You get like 15 minutes after daylight and sometimes 15 minutes right before dark when they pop out into those open areas. So when when you guys are doing that you're actually by the time you're getting there they're already moving to a destination so a lot of time when you do call out a bull it's going to sound like they're running away from you and they're not it's just that they're going to a destination they're going to bed down or in the evening they're going to some place to uh to water or to feed they're heading to those feed areas or water areas you know so you're actually missing out on probably the you know if you had gold silver and bronze okay i would say you guys are hunting the bronze period right now because you know, you're you're limiting your hunt time now chab's exactly right man uh if you want to get out there and you know that's what's so great is look we just gave you we just gave you a promo code you can go to uh and get a base map pro subscription for $24, okay? And that will that will allow you to have, um, uh, to use that for any state in the United States. So you can actually practice right there in Temecula, man. You can get out there and start going out in the dark using that. And what's so nice about that is you don't just use it like a compass. Where a compass, I'm just pointing north and, and I have no idea what's in front of me. But with that base map app, you download the satellite imagery that is so detailed. Yeah, it's that, like a picture. Oh, my gosh. When, when I'm guiding, what I do, and you can have it, so it shows topo lines as well. Yeah. So when I'm guiding, I will generally, because we actually have to ride mm. to a certain point. Well, when I'm riding, I'm actually looking at my base map, and I can see where the meadows are. 
I can see where how the topo lines are, and I can stop exactly where I want to to be able to walk into those meadows with the wind in my face and in the best walking conditions because I can see the topo lines. But I'm telling you this, it's, it's not like a regular topo map. I can look and see the tracks on roads. I can see trees and fallen logs, man. Yeah, so, yeah it, it's cool because that topo line will be a rise right so you can stay below that rise and skirt around with the wind if you need to so you don't have to pop out on top of a ridge i mean all of that is just fantastic stuff joe oh man it it, it's it is for me it was a game changer big time once we had a gps and we could see you know at first when they came out all you could see was topo lines that's all you could see and then you could start getting downloading the Mm -hmm. the satellite imagery the satellite imagery is such a game changer, man, because you're not naked anymore. You're not blind anymore. You can see. I What I do when I'm moving in on an animal in the dark and I have a bull sounding off three, 400 yards in front of me, I'm looking at my base map app and I'm looking to at that at that satellite imagery. Where we think he could be. And, yeah. yeah, and I can point in the direction exactly where he's at and I can tell exactly just about where he's at on that map, man, just from that. And it, it kind of Joe, do you think these guys are hunting together or do you think they each hunt separate areas apart? I, I don't think, I, I don't think that if they're that nervous, I, I don't know, Ryan, I, I'm imagining you guys are hunting together as partners and, uh, but having to head back cause y'all just don't want to be in the situation. What I will tell you is, uh, tell your partner to put some of them thin plastic, uh, you know, safety glasses in the pack. So when you're walking at night, you can wear those just in case and make sure you have good headlamps. I take a good headlamp. I take an extra headlamp, man. And And extra batteries. mm -hmm. And the only rule that I have is in the morning when I'm going out and I'm calling, we always turn off the headlamp before we call. And we, especially when we call or if we hear something, we don't turn our head up and look in that direction until after we've turned our headlamp down. You just got to understand that you don't want to, you know, let them know that you're there. Yeah, and, and a lot of guys are scared of critters too. And at night, if you'll just make enough noise coming through the woods, those critters aren't going to stick around. You know, uh, you got a light on, a lamp on, make enough noise. I mean, you can cough and let everything know your presence is coming and they will, uh, they will boodle along out of the way. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, when you're heading back to camp, I guess. Yeah. When you're heading back to camp, I, like I said, uh, the GPS systems that are out there now, base maps on it, I mean, all it is a game changer. And you should never be afraid to be in the woods after dark or before dark or before light. Yeah, and, and I'm telling you, man, if you are not hunting that, you have hamstrung yourself. Yeah. Uh, you need, guys really need to work on that. And I suggest going out, doing it there where you guys live, go up in the hills yeah. and learn to use that and get comfortable with it. Because it really is, it's all about comfort, man. When you're comfortable with something, you feel better, you feel confident, okay? Right. So I'm going to go back. Great question, though, Ryan. Uh, I good. hope it works out for you guys. John Lang out of Fort Collins, man. I saw photos of John. John's uh he's, man, he's a heck of a fisherman up there, too. I have to make a visit for John up there and see if we can trade out some services, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm all down to catch fish. Uh, yeah, he, he does. He's cool, man. He's always you can see outdoors. These, these didn't come by accident right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, uh, Gilbert is a bass-catching booger, boy. Let me tell you, man. Uh, 
you, we you like actually, to fish. If you, we're not on the ball field, we you actually a pro fisherman, right? Gilbert? At one time, yes, sir. Uh, was aspiring pro pro angler, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, decided uh, I needed to to uh, abandon that dream and do the responsible thing and uh, take care <laughs> of my family and pursue this oil field lifestyle. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, I I I had my resignation drawn up. Joe to, to where I was working uh, back in the day and uh, I led two days of a solid tournament that I needed to win to move on to the elite series stuff and uh, to go to the Bassmasters Challenge as a, uh, as an amateur and my wife and I had prayed about it and we said if that was going to be the case that I would uh, I would go ahead and quit my real job and and go full-time fishing that year in 2008, I fished 48 events out of 52 weeks. Wow. So, yeah, uh, I <laughs> fished a bunch, learned a tough lot. Tough life, man. Met tough a lot of cr- incredible people. Yeah. yeah, my wife is super tough, right? Um, and she was all down for it. She was down for me cutting, quitting my job and going to work as a, as a professional angler and God had other plans for us. Let's oh. just put it that way. Well, I'm kind of so. glad he did because I got to meet you out of that, so – no doubt. John Lang, no doubt. wondering about the afterkill process, best ways to field dress, mistakes to avoid. When Now, there's a lot of questions in this, and I'm, I'm going to give it. So one of them is the best way to field dress, and then mistakes to avoid when field dressing, um, when to hang meat and when you don't need to hang meat, what to do when you have to leave meat overnight if you don't have ice uh, because you've been in the field for a week, then what? Even if you have ice, that elk isn't fitting in the cooler, so how do you chill it? How long before it's bad? Anything else you can think of, man. So, uh, man, John, there's some of these things that had better be thought about before you get out there, and and that's why you're asking the question. So it's a real good question, and and you're going to find that people have – it's like – fish when you clean a fish some people like to flay it some like to uh, uh gut it and Cook some it like whole, to skin yeah. it and you know there's different ways to happen and we have our way to do it but for us you know i i have to field dress an animal when i'm guiding uh but whenever i it's me personally i use a gutless method so i never go inside that animal i can take every bit of meat i need from the outside in even the tenderloins yeah even the tenderloins and and for years i used to gut it and and as i was doing this i was like why did i just do that man because everything that i was taking was on the outside so um i i would rather use the gutless get the quarters off that animal as quick as possible and get them cooling because you know it's all about getting the meat to cool and I think, you know, keeping it clean. Yeah. And I think when people start going internal into the animal is when they actually can introduce some of that bacteria and stuff when when they do that. Uh, If, you know, for a a lot of reasons, you might have a punched paunch. um, You might hit it by yourself. uh, You might have a bladder that you Mm -hmm. nick, you know. Or the arrow may have nicked it. Yeah. 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 So we go from the outside in. And. We actually, and and there's going to be a lot of controversy on what I'm about to say, because I've heard people say you never leave the skin on an animal. How, however, 
when I take, as soon as I take a quarter off, and we're usually on that booger, I mean, after it's dead, we're usually on it quick. There ain't no land, ain't none of that, we're on it. And if I am going to have to pack that animal out to a vehicle and into my camp, it's probably going to be uh, all said and done maybe an hour. And a lot of times, uh, especially before when <laughs> we didn't have the right equipment to do it, I leave the skin on. I go ahead and quarter that animal, leaving the skin on the outside. And the reason I do that is it keeps that perfectly clean. I get no bacteria. Uh, I don't have to worry about dirt or anything like that. And because I've gotten it off the body and I'm getting it to camp, as soon as I get it to camp, then now I'm taking the skin off and I'm actually deboning and getting that animal into the cooler. Now, with that said, that's because of the process of how we do it with our base camp and how we work things. And we have five, six guys, and we can shoot, we can have an, a full animal out in that camp in an hour, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, depending on how long the pack is, right? Sure. So, uh, but that's because we have everybody doing it at the most two hours. And I know some people that an animal will be shot and then they wait to track, right? And that's going to take a certain amount of time. And then you take the time that you get looking. And then you find the animal and you start processing it. I mean, there's hours that go in that process. Uh, so, you know, that, that skin, if that animal's in the shade, that skin actually is in an insulation. Yes, it's insulation to keep heat in, but it's also an insulation to keep stuff from the outside as well. And once you get it off that body, it starts to cool because it's no longer touching that belly and everything like that. So that's what we do with that. We will put the Lomos is what we call them, the back straps. So we'll put those into a bag and, and haul those out, right? Um, now, if, if we're in a situation that is going to be a long time, then we will go ahead and go ahead in the gutless and skin that out and get that quarter into game bags. All right. Um, but man, not very often we've ever had to use a game bag, huh? Mm, no, not too often. Yeah. Uh -uh. Get it back to camp and, and uh, debone it there. Immediately. Put right. it in the coolers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I've gotten up and, you know, guys, we, we had a long pack out last, last time with my bull and, I don't think we got back to camp till two or three in the morning, and I actually got up at about five o'clock and started on my bull because it, it wasn't it wasn't warm. But man, I'm kind of a geek, and when it comes to meat care, and uh, I wanted that skin off that bull. I mean, we were wore out when we got back, right? And it was cold; it's probably thirty-eight to forty degrees. So I mean, we knew the meat wasn't going to spoil, and we, you know, I got up at five in the morning, made a little breakfast and a little coffee, and started on getting that rascal knocked out, you know. Uh, and, I, and, and I believe at, at about 5 o'clock, Joe and them were up and already headed out of camp. They hadn't even laid down two and a half hours. So uh, it was uh, – everybody in our camp helps out. And it's, it's an amazing feat, man. We knock them bulls out in no time and get them on ice. I think the other part of his question was if there is an ice – you don't have any ice. What do you do then? Well, we go get it. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. no no substitution for cooling them down. You, you, know? you know, another reason. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do to cool them down. You can actually cut out the the the, the bone the on the inside. Yeah. But anytime you open up uh, meat, 
you got to be careful because there's something that people aren't thinking about. That's things like yellow jackets and flies. And you create a crevice in that meat that flies are getting into because you don't have good cheesecloth or anything like that, or if you don't have good game bags, man, I'm telling you what, they're making a mess of your meat. So um, I always like to go get it skinned and get it on ice in a cooler. Now, if I did not have a cooler, uh, before I get going there, there's one thing, there's a little test that you can do, man. I always, once I get it off, like Gilbert said, we had like 38 degrees after we got that out and, and we had the skin on it. You can go ahead after you've put it to the side in the cool when it's getting temperature and you can put your hand, the back of your hand on that meat and you can feel how cold it is, how it's cooling down. Yeah. And it'll cool down pretty quick. The warmest area is going to be next to the bone. Right. And uh, you can have that there for a certain amount of time until, you know, uh, it starts. Now, Everything starts to degrade at a certain point. And you were asking about temperature. 40 degrees is that temperature. That's a golden mark. Once your meat is 40 degrees or over, it starts to rot. It starts to go bad. So um, the sooner you can keep that underneath that. And if I did not have anything, I would most likely be deboning, putting it into a large plastic bag. If I had a creek or a river, I would be putting it inside that water, inside the bag, so it could just keep that just like a cooler, basically, like it's on a water bath, but I'd have it in a plastic bag to not let it get contaminated, if possible. If I had no other choice, and I had the choice between losing meat in bad weather and and uh, and putting it in water, uh, I'm putting it in water if I have to put it in a creek and submerge it, and then I'm going to get it out of there. I mean... Uh, if I, ha- you got to take the lesser of your evil sometimes like yeah. that. So, um, but I, I think Joe, they, it's imperative for them to have that figured out before they even make their trip. Right. Sure. Like if there's a packing house there in locally somewhere that's open 24 hours a day and they know that, you know, they need some help packing it out. Can they get it to them, get it hung and get it on ice if they're not carrying a bunch of ice or if it's extremely warm. I mean, last year we were extremely warm. We got that meat down and we took it back into town and put more ice on it. If you remember, you know, so, I mean, uh, a lot of those things come into play when, when that happens. And, and that depends on where you're at. If you can get down into town, there are times that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like uh, John, if you're way up in the mountains, you know, miles and miles and miles away, you know, like uh, Joe mentioned, you know, use that, utilize that, that creek because it's going to be yeah. real cold. Yeah. Or even down, so if you're up there and depends, <clears throat> like if you're in Colorado and September, you can have those 30-degree nights, man, 32-degree yeah. nights, 34, 36, and you get it down in a in a cool, shaded, low area that holds the, the cool <clears throat> air, and you get it hanging in there. Then, then you're going to be good there as long as it's in a game bag. You know when you, when you talk about um, when you talk about the different things that you've got to do to be able to take care of that meat, man. I'm going to uh, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Now, when you said when to hang or not hang, so there's different things when I hear this. Like for example, let's say you're up in the hills and you're the only person. You've got to get that animal out. Let's say three miles, and so it's going to be trips. Well you're going to want to hang that meat someplace. So you're going to go ahead and get that skin off. You're going to get it in bags. You're going to find a cool place in the shade, and you're going to hang it so it can cool off while you're doing the trips back and forth. So that's when you would hang it. A little uh, paracord and your cheesecloth, and you'd be good. Yeah, so you go, yeah, and, and use your game bags and get that happening. Yep. But me, 
you know, when you talk about hanging meat, I always picture how people will go and hang meat in their garage or hang meats in a house or something like that. I will tell you what, um, I never hang meat for, um, <laughs> I never hang meat. Yeah. Uh, I debone it. It goes in the cooler. It's on ice. And then I process it. And yeah. people that think that you have to hang meat for that meat to get tender and stuff ought to do the cooler that I do, man, on ice, my my ice bath. Because, you know, we just got done eating some meat uh, yesterday. Oh, yesterday, yeah. Yeah. And these were regular roasts. This was not backstrap or anything like that. And I'm telling you, man, this is the bull that I killed last year. Uh, brought it in, deboned it, put it on ice, had it on ice uh, on an ice bath for, you know, probably five, six days inside that ice bath, keeping that temperature well cold and cool under there. Uh, and, um, man, that meat was so, it's so tender. It's oh, unbelievable, yeah. man. Because yeah. it leaches all that blood out and that, that meat gets relaxed. So we've never had bad meat that way. Mm -hmm. Never. I mean, it's always been so good to eat. People uh, have told me about, oh, man, I got some elk meat that was rancid. Well, I'm telling you right now, if you did, it's because they didn't take care of it very well in the field. Absolutely, man. Elk, yep. don't, elk meat doesn't taste bad, or it, and it doesn't taste gamey either. Yeah, and if you – if you have ice and the elk isn't fitting in the cooler, uh, I don't know if you're deboning it, but that's what I'm doing. I'm not trying to put all those in there. So, uh, and and if you have to, take a loaf of bread and eat that puppy. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's what we thought last year when I killed my bull. We're like, man, we might just have to bring a loaf of bread up here and eat him. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, I hope that helps you. Uh, how long before it goes bad is going to depend on the temperature, man. As long as you keep that that meat cool um, and you keep it clean, uh, it can stay for a long time. All right, and you know process it as soon as you can. All right, uh, and keep checking it. You know, uh, you know, make sure you're checking for temperature. If you're starting to feel any slime, you're seeing any green. If you're getting that long, man, you, you shouldn't have. You should have taken care of things a lot sooner, okay? Betcha. All right. Um, Bert, Bert uh, Crable out of Indianapolis, Indiana. He says, he's a short-time <clears throat> listener, just three months or so, but I've made it through about all 18 podcasts. Uh, oh, about 18 podcasts so far. Awesome. Brother, he's got a few to go because this is number 79 here. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah for sure. Uh, Love it, especially the Venezuelan mafia trash talking to each other, trash talking to each other. Keep them coming. <laughs> yes. Buddy, they come whether we want them to or not. Man. Exactly. We don't have much choice. <laughs> yeah. Other podcasts talk about the elk moving from high altitudes to lower ones during the later season due to weather or snow. For southwest New Mexico, I'm guessing the snow isn't that big of an issue, especially in October. The divide is only 8,000 in altitude there. Do they still migrate high to low, or is it relatively the same as long as we can, as they can find food and water? You hit the, you hit the you answered your own question, man. Yeah. Yeah. Finding the food and water, man. And um, you're right. We, we don't get those kind of migrations like they do in Wyoming, man. They just don't get that kind of snow where we're at. Right. So. I know, like I said, I know a group of 20 bulls. They have not moved three miles since last year. So it just depends on the situation, depends on the weather, and depends on the food and water. Yep, you know? I think that covered it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, 
I think you pretty much answered your own question. And uh, I'm I'm not sure what time of year you're going to be hunting, but if you're in October, uh, the later in October, to me, the better. Uh, you there's a real tough time in there about October 14th to about or you know anywhere around the 13th to probably the 20th 22nd 25th when those bulls are stashed away trying to recover they're real hard to find sometimes so uh, the later the better on that hunt or the earlier if you're in that early time there no doubt yeah so good stuff Joe what amazing content we've had today great questions from our listeners Guys, if you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. You have to go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes to review us. And uh, you can check out more elk hunting content at elkbros.com. Uh, also, just a reminder, if, if our listeners would like their questions answered uh, on our show, just send your questions to info at elkbros.com. That's info at elkbros.com. Fantastic. Go As ahead, you go can ahead, tell, go. we we answer, talk about it. Does not matter, man. You you can tell us. You know, I I think you suck, and we'll talk about reasons why. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, or the reasons why you do. <laughs> it's all good. No, I'm just kidding. It's all just, good. <laughs> hey, uh, I love the camo, guys. It looks fantastic. You uh, you guys out there that got your orders in, the rest of you that didn't, nan nanny boo boo, uh, we'll we'll have it going again. Uh, y'all keep checking our website for more content, uh, especially with the with all the apparel that's coming up. Um, you know, it's been a fantastic show. I want to thank our elk hunting coaches there in Cimarron. You bet. Guys, y'all keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on them elk herds because uh, these boys from Texas will be, be coming directly, right? <laughs> so, uh, like we say to all our listeners, husbands, kiss your wives. Wives, kiss your husbands. Hug your babies, keep your broad head sharp and your powder dry, and we'll see you next week right here on Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Peace, peace, y'all. Peace. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.